This season, I have teamed up with Blue Microphones. I have been a huge fan of their products for years now. My partner actually gave me a Blue Yeti microphone for my birthday a couple of years ago, and that's what I used to record season one. So to now be working together on season two is just so great. Blue's award-winning products have helped countless podcasters, musicians, YouTube creators, and Twitch streamers find and amplify their voices. So, if you're looking to share your passion with the internet, definitely check out Blue Mics. Hello, I'm Antonia Preville and you are listening to The Most of It, a podcast where I endeavour to find the answer to one big question. How do we make the most of our lives? In today's episode, I am talking to Dr. Lucy Hone about grief. Please note that in this episode, we do discuss sudden loss and bereavement, which some people may find upsetting. Dr. Lucy Hone was already working in the field of resilience psychology when her daughter, Abby, age 12, was tragically killed in a car accident that also took the lives of Abby's friend, Ella, and Ella's mum, Sally. Having to now embark on her own journey of grieving, Lucy was really frustrated by the insufficient and antiquated grief resources that were available at the time, such as the well-known five stages of grief model, which some of you may have heard of, that turns out is neither accurate nor helpful to many bereaved people. So instead, Lucy sought evidence-based strategies that would allow her to take a more active role in her grieving process, and she also found that her previous research on resilience was both relevant and extremely useful. Lucy documented her journey and transferred her first-hand experiences into her best-selling book, Resilient Grieving, which is a hugely hopeful, encouraging, and groundbreaking approach to navigating grief. Now, Dr. Lucy Hone has released an online course, Coping with Loss, The Helper's Guide to Resilient Grieving, which is available via the link on our page. I think the work that Lucy does is so important, and I'm really pleased to have her as part of this conversation and to get her work out there. I hope you get a lot out of it. Hello, Lucy. Hi there, Antonia. Great to be with you today. I've wanted to speak to you for a very long time, not only because your work around grieving is groundbreaking, demonstrating that it can be an active process and not a passive one, but also because I think a discussion around resilience in general is so important and necessary today because people are having such a hard time with so many challenges. So even though we will be talking about grieving specifically in relation to bereavement today, can people use the ideas and strategies that we're talking about to cope with other sorts of loss and trauma? Yeah, that's the good news is absolutely they can. All of my work comes from that vast body of resilience psychology literature. And so all of that research is about how do humans and communities somehow manage to navigate tough times, whether it be, you know, trauma or a natural disaster or early childhood adversity. So any of my strategies that we cover today, definitely people can pick up and try themselves. It's a good time for me to say we would always encourage people to be their own experiment, to kind of lean in, try things and find the strategies that fit for them because, Resilience is a kind of a stew, you know, it's a whole amalgam of processes of ways of thinking and acting and external supports as well. So we all have to find what works for us. And you were absolutely your own experiment, weren't you? You've written this incredibly generous book detailing your own experience with losing your daughter and how your grieving process worked after that. It's a really incredibly intimate and generous and brave thing to do. So Thank you so much for deciding to do that. How long after Abby died did you decide to write Resilient Grieving? Yes, such a good question. So I realised that Abby and her best friend Ella and Sally, who was Ella's mum and really good friend of mine, were killed in 
June of 2014 in a tragic road accident, which obviously turned our lives upside down, you know, on a terrible Saturday afternoon. And I did go back to work quite soon after that because I realised that I needed a bit of normality, as much normality as I possibly could sustain. And so I went back to work six weeks afterwards and finished my PhD, which sounds like a ridiculous thing to do. But actually, I was towards the end of it. So it was reasonably intellectually challenging. But I was on a mission, actually, I felt like everything in my life had changed. And I had been robbed. I didn't know who I was any longer. You know, on Saturday morning, June 2014, I was a mother of three and I was a resilience researcher and I was coming to the end of my PhD. And by whenever the policeman came that night, I literally felt like I was robbed of my entire identity. I didn't know who I was any longer. Mm. I didn't know what life was about. That's obviously pretty typical. So I went back to work because I just became determined that it wasn't going to steal me of my passion for this work as well for resilience psychology. And I found work a real rest definitely was a break for me because when you experience parental bereavement, that obsessive rumination about the person you have lost is exhausting and there's Mm -hmm. just no way to get away from it and I was sick of it you know it's so hard to live with permanently thinking about her I used to kind of play this exercise where I'd try and think about my living beautiful boys in the same obsessive way (laughs) and I'd do it for about 90 seconds and then think oh I'm over this let's get back to Abby it was just tragic so I did my PhD and that was great and Straight after it, I decided that I was so fed up with the grief literature and advice that we were given at the time of Abby's death that I wanted to write a book. So I started writing the book straight after I finished my oral for my PhD, which is kind of August 2015. And the publishers wanted it in by December. So I actually kind of had about two months I wrote it in, which was fine. I'm a writer. It literally fell out of me. And it's a funny thinking of your podcast and the theme here about how, you know, do we piece together meaningful lives? My niece is a writer, a beautiful writer, Chessie Henry. And I remember saying to her, I wrote that book at 40, I was 49 years old. I couldn't have written it at 39 years old. I couldn't have written it at 29 years old or even at 19. You know, it was the culmination of all of my research and living. And it was effortless. You know, I actually, we talk about the flow state in psychology Mm -hmm. when you are so in the zone. I don't really remember writing it. I remember it being hard work because I'd sometimes write for 12 hours a day. But I was just absolutely determined to give the bereaved an alternative view of grief. I was so fed up with the passive nature of the grief resources when all of my training indicated and all of the literature that I have read in my academic career points to the fact that people firstly are hardwired to cope with all ranges of traumatic events. Secondly, that actually We do really well, surprisingly well, when faced with potential trauma. All of the literature says that when we're faced with potentially traumatic events, the usual normal response is actually resilience. People cope on their own without needing medical or therapeutic intervention. So encouraging. And thirdly, we have all these ways of thinking and acting that are backed up by good scientific studies that tell us things we can do to help us. So that's what the book was about, just applying all of that body of knowledge from resilience psychology to the bereavement context, being an experiment saying, bloody hell, I don't know (laughs) whether this is going to work, but shall we give it a go? Was it a big decision for you to channel your own personal experience through the research literature as well? Or did that just feel like what you had to do? Because it's a lot to share publicly, isn't it? Yeah, it's a good question. And I actually found when I was clearing out my office at the beginning of 2021, this January, I had a bit of a turf out and I found the list of pros and cons that I uh-huh. had, my husband and I had written about writing the book. And 
one of the big disadvantages, of course, is going public with that story and inviting media and public attention in. But the advantages did outweigh the disadvantages. I'm a writer. I've always been a writer all my life since I was um, my first job when I was 23. And as a writer, it's hard to not write. I started a blog five days after the girls were killed. And it is my way of processing the world around me. But I'm also in a field where I had information, important information to share. And our entire, my entire work mission and the institute where I work, our entire work mission is helping people get the best out of life and manage to weather whatever is thrown at them. So it was kind of a no-brainer. When I first submitted it, I hadn't written about the girl's death. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I wasn't. I was kind of avoiding that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and the editors came back and said, um, "You might need to write a few pages at the beginning here." Mm. Oh um, gosh. And actually, anyone who's read the book will know that while it is about us, I put lots of other stories of other people in there because I didn't want. I was trying it to not make it all about us. Yeah, the other stories you've included. Uh, moving and also beneficial, offering other perspectives and ideas and strategies from people all over the world. So going back to this lack of accurate grief literature, how has this happened? I've certainly heard of the stages of grief model, the Kubler-Ross model, and I'd say most people listening, that probably sounds at least vaguely familiar. Mm. How has this been the dominant idea when, mm. as you say, there's been so much literature that flows in the face of that. Yes, it's um, really fascinating, isn't it, and frustrating that mm -hmm. in my training that we do, we always ask people, you know, who's heard of the five stages of grief? And most people can name, you know, two or three of them. Mm -hmm. So what happened was Elizabeth Kubler-Ross wrote this book on death and dying. I can't even remember now, but a long time ago. It's a 20th century book, I'm pretty sure. And she wrote it firstly for people who were anticipating grief. So it's not even about bereavement. It's mm -hmm. actually about anticipating your own grief, the stages you go through as you prepare to die when you've been given a diagnosis. Oh, okay. So right. completely nothing Different to do with process, bereavement. Yeah. 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 But actually what really interests me is that, as you rightly say, the research that has been conducted in the bereavement field since shows that people just don't grieve in stages. Grief as they say, is as individual as your fingerprint. We all do it differently. We all feel it differently. Just as all of our relationships with the people we were are grieving are different, it's completely false to think that we would go through these stages. And so from a scientific perspective, the main criticisms are that there isn't any evidence that people go through these stages. It's conceptually inadequate. It, absolutely, this five stages fail to represent the complexity of what we experience when we are grieving. My main real kind of bugbear is that it places mourners in this passive role. And that was what I felt acutely at the time was, well, thanks for that. You've given me the five stages of grief. So you've told me that I'm going to go through anger, denial, bargaining, depression, and maybe one day acceptance. Well, firstly, I got to acceptance on day one. I just accepted it. Right. You know, it was shit and it is terrible and I never saw it coming and I hate it. But, you know, she's dead and I know that. So, mm. so they're certainly not sequential. And you can imagine that if someone didn't have your training and assumed that they had to go through these stages in this order, mm. if they suddenly felt like they were accepting it on day one, wouldn't they just think, okay, well, um, I must be in denial? Yeah, And absolutely. they'd start berating their own grief process, which just seems like the worst thing to do. It truly is the worst thing because they're actually damaging. And so I've heard that from counsellors where they've said the number one presenting issue when people come to see them about grief is they say, I'm not grieving correctly. I'm not going through all the um, stages. I'm feeling bad about that. And it's like, for heaven's sakes, you know, that's 
just bonkers, isn't it? So it's definitely time to retire the five stages of grief. Be model. gone, five stages. Be gone. Um, <laughs> and actually, researchers know that. But what my bugbear is the fact that we've got this really big gap between um, the best evidence and the way that grief is kind of practiced, you know, and the advice you get from helping professionals, health practitioners, from nurses. It's still the number one model that's being taught in nursing globally. It still is. Mm. So, uh, so the reasoning people think about that is that it's kind of a safe little box, isn't it? You know, we like, yeah. a, we like a model. It's intuitive. People can go, oh, yeah, okay, that's what I... It's tidy. Yeah. And so, of course, if you are a nurse talking to someone who's just in harrowing grief for all of us when you're supporting someone who's grieving we want to help of course don't we yeah of course and so having this kind of nice little shiny tidy model that you can bring out is tempting but that is my urgent request to the world is that we understand that it isn't actually helpful that mm-hmm. to know that um grief is as individual as your fingerprint is useful Everyone's going to do it differently. There's no right or wrong way to grieve. But equally important is to convey this message that you can be an active participant in your grief process. You know, there are ways of choosing to think and act that can support you and help you adapt to that loss. They're not going to take away the pain. Yes, and let's just talk about the pain for a second Mm. because anyone who has gone through bereavement or any sort of significant loss, it's awful. The feelings are so intense and unbearable and overwhelming. I hope this question doesn't sound sort of too simplistic, but why the hell do we feel so bad? If we are wired to cope, if most of us are naturally resilient, why do we have to go Mm. through these Mm. awful feelings for quite a long time? Yeah. Like, is there any point to it? So there is a point to it. So firstly, grief comes from the fact that humans are wired for attachment, but live in a world of impermanence. Mm -hmm. Pretty profound, isn't it? That we are wired for attachment. We love to love. We do. Um, (laughs) And we love to have our hearts broken. And I can't even remember what the old Shakespearean quote is now about. um, Something about love. (laughs) Better to have loved and lost than not loved at all. Mm -hmm. And we agree with that. So that is why grief occurs. But outward manifestations of grief occur because they help us get support. Mm -hmm. So I think that's why the sorrow and the pain and the anguish. I would like to note at this time as we have this conversation and you just described how miserable it is to give listeners hope I actually can't remember that anguish and pain now um really I feel different misery and longing but I really cannot remember and feel how awful those first couple of years were to be fair um so it does it does ease you will get through this thank you for saying that that's really encouraging i i know people mm. will yeah find a lot of hope in that mm. and since we know we live in a world of impermanence death is just as much a part of life as anything and again we are wired to cope with it Maybe I needed to speak from my own personal experience here so as not to put other words in other people's mouths. But when someone dies in my life, particularly if they die suddenly, I find it so difficult to fully comprehend that they've gone, mm. particularly if they're not in my immediate location. So I can't yeah. sort of travel to the funeral or they weren't part of my day to day life. I find it almost impossible to believe at a deep level that they are now not in the world, mm. that they're gone. So I guess my question is, why is it when death is so common, so hard to understand it? We're so bad at it, aren't we? (laughs) Yeah, well, I feel like I am, so maybe we all are. (laughs) Um, I do think it is, given that it's the only certainty in life, we're not very good at talking about it. Uh Obviously, I do a fair bit of talking about it, and I'm not shy of it. It does astound me how bad we are at discussing it openly and bravely. Actually, what you just said, Antonia, I think is the good and the bad of COVID, that if you lose someone during COVID, you're not able to be with them, which makes it so much harder. 
But I have also had people say to me, because of COVID, because they had not been seeing that person, it has somehow made it, the loss process, that little bit easier sometimes too, because it's not somebody you were accustomed to seeing every single day. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, you and I are both New Zealanders, although I wasn't born here. You might be able to pick up a bit of my um, (laughs) original Pommy accent. But because we live in this beautiful country that is profoundly based in Indigenous culture, then we brought Abby's body home because that's what our Indigenous Māori people would do. And in terms of accepting the death and actually getting my head around it, we had her at home for five days in an open coffin on her bed and the whole of our community came through in the mornings. We would actually leave the house each morning so that we could kind of get a breath of fresh air and do what needed to be done. And But having her there and I knew mainly, I, I guess I kind of knew because of my research background, but I also think I knew intuitively and because we'd done the same with my mother that having a dead body there for me to visually look at was an important part of my acceptance and processing, making Mm -hmm. it real. You know, there's no avoiding the fact when you're actually staring at a body that's not breathing. Mm -hmm. And it might sound really confronting and tough for people because the first time when my mum died, my sister who lived in New Zealand suggested we did that. And I said to her, are you crazy? Mm -hmm. We were still living in England, but actually, and it took me three days to go and see my mum in her coffin. Because you thought it would be too hard? Yeah, too scary. I was too Mm -hmm. spooked. And it was a game changer for me. I think it was the best thing I've ever done. And now whenever I see a coffin at a funeral, I, I think about my mum and I think about my girl and I don't feel terrible. I, You know, I'm more familiar with it. And so that's been a big learning, big, mm. big learning. And I'm very grateful for the cultural practices of the Māori people who have helped that part of my life. I'm really glad you brought that up because I did want to ask if our... Western culture or our Indigenous culture in New Zealand and around the world, what cultural practices serve this active process of grieving better? I think not being English is a good start. <laughs> yeah, right. So Western, Western culture Western doesn't really but, help. But I'm going to say, you know, the Irish are pretty damn good at it. So mm-hmm. it's um, Indigenous cultures and anybody who doesn't practice the British stiff upper lip, I think. those. I don't think the Victorian era did a lot of good for us. How are we doing in New Zealand in general, do you think? I honestly don't feel I'm qualified to answer that question. Um, I don't know who brings bodies home and what sort of... But I know that it is. You and I would both say it's a pretty common practice to bring your dead home. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And to welcome the community, um, anyone into the house too, which is a pretty beautiful thing. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's relevant that the main motivator for me, one of the other main motivators for me for doing that was that I knew our community were grieving and that when you are grieving as a support player, you are desperate to do anything that can help and you need to grieve yourself. And I wanted to give all of Abby and Ella's friends an opportunity to process that grief rather than have it shut away. So they came with their families and they put things in the coffin and they wrote her messages and they put flowers and photos and I think it was an important moment for them to Mm -hmm. learn about death and to know that it is part of life. And you could share your grief with them, which I imagine was also incredibly important. Yeah, and for me that was okay. And, you know, I was listening to you and Nigel Latter discussing introverts and extroverts um, the other day on your podcast. It's such a great podcast. And I was thinking, you know, I'm um, actually it's not either or, introvert or extrovert. And so, you know, most people that completely resonates, you know, they can be mainly introverted but have moments of extrovert. And what I loved is, you know, his definition about introverts is social interaction depletes you. So mm-hmm. it does me and it I can do about two hours and then I'm done. But knowing that, because I know myself because of all the psychology I've done, I just knew I had to get out of the house in the morning when people were coming through. So, yeah. you know, that was my way. I wanted to be generous. I wanted to open up the house. I wanted to give all that 
all of those people who loved her the opportunity to grieve. But I also knew that I had to look after myself. And because I'm taught to ask myself, will doing this help or harm me? I thought, okay, I need to get out. So we would just, you know, say hi to a few and get out and come back later. Yeah. This episode of The Most of It is powered by Blue, the mic of the internet. If you're thinking about creating a podcast, starting a YouTube or Twitch channel, or even if you just make a lot of Zoom calls, take a minute to think about your audio quality. The Blue Yeti USB mic is the internet's most popular mic, and it's easy to see why. It's really simple to use, it delivers premium sound quality, and it even looks great too. I have been a huge fan of Blue for a long time. Not only do they make fantastic microphones that I know I can always rely on, but I also really love their values, which are all about helping people find and amplify their voices. So it's a great match for this podcast. I love how my Blue mic enables me to share my passion project with you and so do countless other creators all over the world. So if you're looking to bring pro-quality sound to whatever you do, Check out Blue, the mic of the internet. So let's talk about some of the strategies that you mention in your book. And obviously the main thesis of them all is that grieving does not have to be a passive process. Mm -hmm. And there are many things you can do actively which can help you move through the grieving journey, Mm. not to take away Mm. the feelings of it, but to help you move through it. Yeah. You suggest some strategies to cope in the immediate aftermath, including where to focus your attention and also the importance of getting back into routines. Those mm. two in particular struck me. Would you mind talking a bit about them? Yeah. So understanding that where we focus our attention makes up our world is a really fundamental aspects of resilience psychology. So if you're always focusing on the aspects of your best friend that drive you nuts, that relationship will break down in time. If you manage to cast your net a bit wider and think, actually, let's just remember to tune into the things I love about this person, then that relationship has got a better chance of surviving. So choosing where you focus your attention is absolutely critical. For me, when the girls died, the sort of most prominent way that that emerged was I had this voice in my head saying to me, choose life, not death. Don't lose what you have to what you've lost. We have two beautiful sons who need me and deserve my attention right then. They were teenagers. I mean, they. I became so determined not to let it ruin their life. Obviously, mm-hmm. it will have a major impact on them all their lives. So I was really being careful about that. And also another example is we were asked to go to the court case to read out our victim impact statements to the driver who sped through the stop sign at 100 kilometres an hour and killed all three of them. And I remember my husband and I just saying to each other, really, will that help us or will it harm us? And I said, well, it's definitely not going to help me. So we chose instead to focus our attention on our boys. And in, during that court case, we went to their school and spent some time with their teachers because they'd just gone back to school. And we thought, actually, let's do something constructive. Let's do something more important than raking over what has happened. And let's just go and have a conversation with the teachers to see how they're getting on. Mm-hmm. So pretty basic. And the way you tune into whether you are Choosing to focus your attention in the right place is by asking yourself that question. Is the way I'm thinking or is the way I'm acting helping or harming me in my quest to survive this, to get through this, whatever this is? Is it literally using your willpower to shift your attention from what you don't want to be focusing Mm. on to something that would be more constructive? Yes. Great synopsis. 
So being mindful yeah. of that. Yeah. Can we both agree that that's not always easy? Oh my gosh, it's hard <laughs> and it's exhausting, right? It is exhausting. And actually self-control, willpower, is not something that humans are very good at. And it's a depleted source, which is so interesting. So the more you use it, you're actually going to run out of it, mm-hmm. which is why we all kind of rate, you know, we're, we can eat healthily all day and then eat all the biscuits in the tin or the jar at the end of the day. <laughs> I think um, a few people, including me, can relate to that. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So... Um, And I had little rules for myself where I would, for instance, that kind of bargaining business of saying, what if I hadn't let her in the car that day? What if I hadn't planned our weekend away? And I'd let myself, I had a rule that I would do two of those and that would be it because Mm -hmm. after that it was not helping me and I needed to survive. You know, I'm the matriarch. (laughs) I got plans. I need to um, be there. Yeah, great advice. Again, not easy to do all the time, but a great Mm. anchor to keep coming back to. And then the importance of getting back into routine. Mm. Yeah, why is that important? And also, how do you know when is the right time to start that? So the earthquakes, I live in Christchurch, New Zealand, and we went through a really big series of devastating earthquakes from 2011 to 2013. And they taught me the importance of returning to some kind of semblance of normality, some kind of establishing routines as soon as you sensibly can after the event, whatever the event is. And so your second question is such a good one. You know, how do you know? Well, the bottom line is there is no steady rule on that. You you give it a go and see when you're ready and you go easy and kind on yourself. But we did feel that we were ready to start to go back to work, as I said, at about six weeks. But even before that, I think even a week after, you know, immediately after the girls died, we would just try and put some kind of routine in place. So that would literally mean getting up in the morning and having a cup of coffee, going to walk the dog, coming home, you know, talking to a couple of people about whatever needed to be done, leaving the house while others were coming into the house, coming back, having some lunch, you know, having a sleep in the afternoon, getting up, da-da-da. So pretty basic. We're not talking, you know, overachievement here. And the reason it's important is particularly if you've been through a traumatic event because trauma implements our fight or flight response and going back to some kind of regular routine tells your brain that it's okay to turn off your fight or flight response. Uh That's really interesting and a great fact to recognise. Basically, it's safe. It signals Mm. that it is safe out there and you need to turn it off because it's exhausting. Having your fight or flight response dialed up all the time is exhausting. Mm -hmm. And leads to a host of other issues, doesn't it? Mm. And so what you said before about the timing just has to be intuitive and individual. As you said before, there's no rule, everyone grieves differently, which suggests that everyone moves through their grief at a different pace and their needs are different. Yeah, absolutely. And I think from a, if you're listening to this and you're supporting someone with any type of loss, so you and I are talking a lot about bereavement, but as you said at the beginning of the show, Antonia, this is applicable to dealing with any kind of challenge or loss. Then if you're in a supporter's role, it's really important to know to give that person time, give them leniency. You know, there's no bad behaviour really. And to be patient with them to keep letting them tell their story time and time again. That last recommendation is a tip I picked up from bereavement research, which really resonated with me because I can look back on my life and remember instances when friends or colleagues or family members have lost a loved one or gone through a major disaster. And I've kind of noticed how they have wanted to tell their story afterwards, sometimes repeatedly. And I found myself at one point standing outside a school classroom with the teacher telling me about how she'd lost her brother in a motorbike accident and thinking, wow, the school bell's gone. Are you just going to go on and on? And, and she was. And so then when I learned about the importance of 
giving people the time and opportunity to retell their story. It made so much sense to me. So what people are doing when they retell their story is they are, over time, making sense of what has happened to them. So it's a really important way that you can support someone if they're going through grief or any other kind of challenging times is just to be that really good listener, to never indicate that you're tired of hearing the story, but to let them tell it again and again and again. And you might even notice that the story changes a little bit over time. And that is because you are watching in real time them grapple with the kind of senselessness of it and then over time by retelling it and then maybe getting a little bit of kind of snippet from somebody else's opinion and thinking yep that makes sense I'm going to integrate that into this story that that is what they are doing and we now know from bereavement research that bereavement is a crisis of meaning and the biggest task we have to grapple with when we are dealing with any type of loss is making sense of it, you know, kind of integrating it into our life story. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. And it's the second time this idea of storytelling, your own personal narrative has come up in this podcast. When I spoke to Emily Espahani smith who researches how to create a meaningful life, this was one of the essential pillars is how we interpret the events of our life because obviously there is no such thing as objective reality. It's all just how we interpret these things. So it's really interesting that it's also very essential for grieving. I was about to say successful grieving, but I stopped myself. It's not the right word, is it? Yeah, so we call it healthy adaptation to loss. Okay, yeah, (laughs) because successful seems like not, we're not aiming for success, are we? We're just... And it's not good grief or success or, yeah. that's right. It's just, yeah, healthy adaptation. It's a really interesting point and one that I think is um, really good to talk about because it's slightly abstract, that idea of reframing your own life because I think when we go through it, we don't often think of it in a way that could have a judgment. We just think, Mm. oh, this is what has happened. And it's only with time and conscious effort that we can look back and perhaps think of another way to reframe it. Yeah, a different interpretation. I really like Brene Brown's words where she says, um, the stories we tell ourselves. The stories we tell ourselves. You know, boy, we tell ourselves some crazy shit sometimes, don't we? (laughs) Yeah. And so, Lucy, it is possible to find meaning in all trauma? Oh, I don't know if I'm qualified because I'm not a trauma psychologist. I'm not qualified to say that. But what I can say is that the field of post-traumatic growth shows that, and post-traumatic growth is a thing, let's just, we unpack that first, that most people know, uh, have heard of post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, and hardly anyone's ever heard of post-traumatic growth, which actually is more common. And in bereavement and in trauma, and actually the higher the trauma, the more likely the higher the growth. So that I can tell you is empirically, you know, that's robust Mm -hmm. research. So what happens is you have this tragic event and it smashes your life to smithereens. You know, as I said at the beginning, your life story as you thought you knew it is completely torn apart. And so coming to terms with that event involves us piecing back together our lives. And we do so by integrating what has happened into our life story. And so it is a search for meaning. And what we see in when people are dealing with losses is that if they can make something meaningful come from it, then that helps them adapt to the loss. And that Mm -hmm. doesn't have to be something, you know, kind of rocket science, massive. No, exactly. If it just gives you a greater appreciation of your coffee in the morning, your friends who are still living, the ability and opportunity to live. I mean, for me, I've always felt like Sally, my dear friend, died and I owe it to her to do as much, see as much of our beautiful countryside as I possibly can. And, you know, I'm very motivated by her. So, um, That's kind of, you know, one of the meaning pieces for me. And my work, I guess, is the big thing. 
in this book, right? Yeah, and so I, I do know it took me a while to recognise that, but the book was originally called What Abby Taught Us, and so uh-huh. that's it in a nutshell, isn't it? You know, what can we learn from such a tragic event? I think all of this work that I do, I do a fair bit of work really in helping people cope with loss, not individuals, but through books and training programs. That what I am doing, I guess, is making sense come from the senseless. What has Abby's death taught you? It's taught me that life is wild and precious. You know, it really is fragile and not to be taken for granted, to be um, appreciated in all the small and big things. I think I already knew that it was just all about <laughs> loving those that you have anyway. And I feel so fortunate that she knew that. And I have no regrets with her. You know, we couldn't have loved her more. But it has also taught me that you can live and grieve simultaneously. And when she died, nobody gave me that picture. And you know, that I guess is what I aim to do with all of our work. And that is the message that we give constantly to helping professionals to scotch that myth that you have to write off five years of your life. That's what we were told to do to loss. And in fact, you can just do a messy, grieving, living thing. And that's okay. So if you could give one bit of advice to someone going through massive grief, bereavement, loss, trauma, what would that be? I guess quickly a couple of pieces of advice to to know that you, you know, you have it within you to get through, to have a kind of hopeful prescription that humans are hardwired to cope with grief. It's not fun. It's not what you wanted, but you can cope with challenge and loss. And also to monitor the way you are thinking and acting by asking yourself whether it's helping or harming you and to accept help and assistance from those around you. So I think that is really critical too. That's great advice. And just to expand on that then, what is your advice? You've, you touched on it before, but perhaps there might be more to say for the support network for people who desperately want to help. Because I, I know I've been in situations where I want to do the right thing, but I feel hamstrung so I don't end up doing anything or I'm worried about saying the wrong thing so I don't say anything. And I I know intuitively that's not right, but for some reason, and perhaps this comes back to why the fact that we're so bad at talking about death, it gets in the way. So mm. what would you say to people who, with the best of intentions, want to help someone going through grief? Firstly, I'd say everything you just said, say it out loud. Say, you know, I so want to help you. I don't know what to do. I don't want to know what to say. I don't want to stuff it up. I'm so mindful that I cannot imagine what you are going through. That is really key. Do not ever imagine that you know what they're going through, even if you've lost your granddad, your cat, or any other loss. Yep. You know, no loss is the same. So don't compare. Make it really clear that you are there for the long run that you're not just going to be here for the next few weeks, that you will never expect them to get over it, but that you will stand by with them as they learn, relearn to live in the world, I think is what it's really about. Ask them what they need. We do a lot of psychological training with people to avoid thinking traps. And one of the, you can just Google thinking traps and find out about more about them. But one of the key and most common thinking traps is we expect people to be mind readers. So you cannot read their mind and they cannot read yours. So I think for the bereave, we need to tell people what we need and our supporters just ask you know, say, what can I do to help? And know that there are so many different ways of helping. You know, there's all that instrumental helping, mowing the lawns, picking the kids up after school, going to the dentist appointment with them, all of those things that their partner or significant other or whoever has gone might have done. And then there's the emotional support as well. There's just the listening sitting down and giving them time. but So there are just lots of different ways, but I think the most important thing is to just go the distance with them and know that every time you say to them, how are you doing today, that you're saying, you know, I don't expect you to be over it. Mm, thank you. That's great advice. So, Lucy, what's next for you? 
So 2021, here we come. We, we're doing um, it. <laughs> we're doing it somehow or other. And um, I, yeah, I guess I've got two things to say about that for your listeners. Firstly, what is next for us at the Institute is that at the end of last year, we finished our online course, which is about everything we've discussed today, really. It's called Coping with Loss, and it is a kind of practical guide to resilient grieving for helping practitioners and helping professionals to update them in the new science of bereavement so that they can discard those five stages of grief and have other really useful evidence-based tools to help those navigating grief, any type of grief or challenge. So that will be online on our NZIWR website. Great. But the other thing is, you know, I just urge people to... um, look after themselves this year to know that it's a marathon, not a sprint. And I'll be doing the same myself to go ahead with caution, to pace yourself and know that we will get through this. Again, we are wired for resilience. It might not change the feelings of difficulty going through that process, but we most probably will get through it. Yeah, as Gandalf says, this too shall pass. (laughs) (laughs) So to end this wonderful conversation, and again, Lucy, I'm just so grateful for all your expertise and such valuable wisdom, knowledge and insight about this incredibly important issue that has just not been given airtime, appropriate airtime to this point. So thank you for that. So the first of the final three questions is, what is the most significant lesson that you've learned? So I got this, I'm borrowing this from Steve Jobs, his Stanford commencement address some time ago. You can Google it. And what I loved about it is that he says to trust the process as your life unfolds because you can't connect the dots You know, when you're looking forward, you don't know what's going to happen. But when you look backwards, I can connect the dots of my life. And so that gives me kind of hope and empowers me to think that I can't solve all the problems and I can't preempt all the problems and I can't remove vulnerability, but I can believe that I can learn something from everything that life throws at me. And I guess this comes back to meaning again, doesn't it, that over time, there is some coherence and sense with how those dots connect together. That is a great lesson and so important. And that, yeah, that really resonates with me, actually. So I'm, I'm sure it will resonate with our listeners. So what is a lesson that you still have to learn? Um, not, not to worry about my, my boys. It's a tough one. Really tough. And they're growing up. Yeah. So I have really worked hard at letting them go um, right from day one after she died. But that's tough for me. And um, they're good. They're 22 and 20. And I'm determined to let them find their own way in life and just let them go and not interfere and to show them the importance of just trusting in that process. So, And you mean because obviously your anxiety and vulnerability about them is so heightened because of what happened to Abby. Yeah, I think I, I mean, I think I mean that. I do definitely mean that, um, I guess, and that's why I cry. But mm. actually, I also mean that to all parents that, you know, we, um, the first article I ever wrote um, as a journalist was about the dangers of paranoid parenting, you know, the importance of not mollycoddling your children and letting them fail and lose and get hurt. And so my boys, um, my eldest son, who's just got his first job this week so that's oh, just brilliant wow. <laughs> um and he found it himself and uh, you know thrilled whatever it would be I'd be thrilled and so and then the other one is finding his way and that's my you know most important lesson I have to still learn is to just have trust in them let them do that and and lives are messy and I can't remove the mess from their life and I can't there's no value in cosseting them and trying to do it for them I have to let them walk through their world independently yeah thank you so much for (laughs) for sharing that with us and finally Lucy Hone how do we make the most of our lives 
Yay, how do we? That isn't that just the million dollar question. So I think number one, we don't sweat the small stuff. That will be what my husband would say that Abby taught him. And I totally agree with that. And on top of that, kind of combined with that, is planning for the good stuff. And I think this is particularly important this year. In week one of this year, um, when I came back to work, I went and bought myself two wall planners, one for work and one for fun, because we are going to need to plan some fun this year. And even if you're in lockdown and you can't get out, you still need to top up your psychological piggy bank with the things that you enjoy, the things that make you laugh, the people that inspire you. And so it's really important we get intentional and plan that. So here in New Zealand, we're lucky because we can get outside. And so I have this wall chart that's just got a bit of hiking and camping and going to visit friends. And I'm determined to have something to look forward to every month because that will just redress that kind of psychological balance. You know, it will keep tipping the scales in my favour and stave off burnout. That's such good advice. I think I'm going to do that as well. <laughs> it's a really, really good suggestion. It's so good because <laughs> it gives you hope and it makes you kind of look at it and go, whoa, I've got nothing for three or four months now. I better get intentional in planning. And it takes time to plan even a weekend away, doesn't it? Um, oh, it so, sure does. It's a lot of logistics to organise. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You've got small children, so that's, you know, really tough. We have small, annoying, yappy dogs. We all, you know, we have to, <laughs> also have tough. to arrange. And I do realise that these are kind of trifling, you know, first world problems. But I think the bigger message is whatever it looks like, whatever your scope for finding things to top up your psychological piggy bank, take that seriously. Thank you. That's such wonderful advice. Thank you so much for your time today and for all the work that you've done, really. I just think what you've created is such a valuable resource and will help so many people at such critical times in their lives. So thank you so much. And I can't wait to see what you do next. Yay. Thanks, Antonia. And thanks to all your listeners for tuning in. Yay. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to that conversation. I do really hope that you got a lot out of it. And again, if you or anyone you know has experienced a loss and is going through a grieving process, I cannot recommend more highly Lucy's book, Resilient Grieving. It's pretty extraordinary and has helped so many people. <laughs>